and welcome back to Bright Orange Future. I'm really excited about this episode today, Maddie G. How about you? Uh, I'm percolating. Percolating? You yeah, bet. All right. You bet. All right. Uh, what's new with you last, uh, last since we last spoke? I know you've got a big birthday today in the, in the fam. That's exciting. Oh, uh, yes. My daughter is turning 11 today. It's big news here in Seattle, as you know. Big birthday. Yeah. I, I don't know if you know how instrumental... Uh, Margot's uh, birth low those many years ago was in, uh, in me snagging my wife because I had uh, replaced a prominent picture on my social media of, of like me holding a baby and it just made me seem very dateable. Oh, that's nice to know. That's nice yeah. to know. I'll, I'll let Margot know that she's, you know. Yeah. She's, she's uh, part apart of that from process. being just yeah. an amazing little girl. Um, so yes, we look forward to uh, FaceTiming later and, and singing happy birthday with the girls. But um, yeah, everything's pretty good up here. Everybody's doing well. Uh, you watching any uh, of this NBA in the bubble, or is that just like not interesting anymore? I'm riveted. Really? I, okay. I'm watching as much as I can, um, which is you know like five minutes here or there. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. I think it's it's great hoops, and as a as a hoop fanatic, uh, you know I've been I've been digging it. I, th- I think it's cool. Nice. All right. Yeah. Well, o- over here we're on uh, '80s movies kicks because. Uh, Wifey has discovered that cinema was different, and uh, and there's a lot of good stuff to go back and rediscover. So she's given up her uh, sort of uh, rule against old-looking movies, and we're going back and watching Karate Kid and Look Who's Talking and all the '80s stuff. It's kind of fun. You know, after you do that, you should rewatch Stranger Things because mm-hmm. it is just so good. Like on a rewatch, there's yeah. so many little details that they get right, and that is so fun and so entertaining. Uh, we're, You're we're assuming that. that I saw it the first time. I didn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, then, then, then you can just see it for the first time. That's, that's yeah. that works, too. Yeah. yeah, good Netflix show. Awesome. So we're really excited about our guest today. We have uh, Mr. Max Kaiser of the Kaiser Report, and uh, he has a new show coming out that a lot of us are very excited about. I'm going to be listening all the time. Um, so, Max, yeah. you here? Yeah, I sure am, Corey. All right. How's it going? Good, where's good. Your brother? Where's your brother, Matt? We got, where's he at? I'm here. He's I'm here. here. How's it going, oh, there Max? He is. Great oh, to see yeah. you, brother. Yes. That's good, brother. It's nice to see <laughs> All you. All right. The Seattle. Thank you. The battle yep. in Seattle. The battle oh, in Seattle. I'm a veteran of the battle. Team yep. Now called the Seattle Kraken. It's yes, we do. Bitcoin. Beautiful. Yep. yep. It's 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 fueled by Bitcoin. The whole the whole hockey team is paid in Bitcoin. It's 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 very forward thinking. The whole thing is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Here's my uh, look at this, man. Ooh. Wow. It's my swan logo. That is very nice. I think, you know, if swan, if there was a king swan, Max, I think you'd be the king swan. That's probably Yeah, maybe. That's what my name Kaiser means, king. Right? So it's uh, taken from Caesar. So after Caesar left Europe, a lot of people took that name king, whether it was Kaisers in Germany or Tsar in Russia. And of course, Max Kaiser means king of kings. Uh, so I'm like an uber king, ultra king, top of the king list. I'm number one king, king of all kings. I mean, that's indisputable. So what are you planning to conquer next, Max? Let's just get that right out of the, the way right now. What's I'm going looking on? to conquer the global unconscious, right? It's the last mm. untapped frontier. Bitcoin is a channel into the global unconscious. Bitcoin became self-aware at around block 300,000. It's trying to save us from ourselves. Uh, you know, the 100 quintillion 
transactions per second is a way to channel the intentions of God into our global unconsciousness. And hopefully we heed the warning and heed the instructions, uh, you know, because the fact is that Bitcoin will keep going, whether there are humans around or not, you know, humans could become extinct and Bitcoin is still going to go, still going to go higher, still going to keep going. Right. So it's up to us to listen to Bitcoin and, and, and understand what it's telling us. That's, that's a pretty good jumping off point. And uh, what is the vehicle by which you're going to be uh, helping to spread this message going forward, Max? <laughs> well, you know, we've got the Kaiser reports been on for more than 10 years, uh, almost 1600 episodes seen by millions all over the world, dubbed into Spanish, seen by millions more. And we have a Double Down podcast, which airs once a week. It's been going on for a few years. And now we're launching the Orange Pill podcast produced by Stacey Herbert. And uh, it's going to be launching here in the next few days. So this is really going to pick up where we left off uh, in terms of podcasting. We started podcasting when we first met back in 2003, before there even was really something called podcasting. You had to kind of create your own network and do it very, um, you know, home version of it. And that went on for a while. Then we did a show in London on Residence 104.1 FM for about 10 years called The Truth About Markets, which was a radio show. We did a radio show in Paris called Paris Live Radio, did that for a couple of years. And so we've had a lot of experience in radio and podcasting. So this is kind of a return to podcasting, orange pill podcast. The theme is, okay, you've taken the red pill. What comes next? What comes after the red pill? That's what I'm saying. Like after the red pill is this global unconsciousness that we're hacking into. And that's what this podcast is all about. Bitcoin, of course, is the currency of the global unconsciousness. And um, this is where we're heading. You know, this is the new frontier. What other means do you think will facilitate that process? Um, well, I think it's uh, in nature. You always yeah. see a quantum changes happen. You know, things don't usually happen in fractions so much. They happen in more of a quantum way, like the way electrons travel around atoms, you know, it's in a quantum state or they bounce around from quantum to state to, they don't gradually move from one place to another. And things happen in these huge seismic shifts. And right now we're seeing a total collapse of fiat money around the world, the, the, the collapse of Keynesian economics, the collapse of the nation state as we know it and the collapse of and some very major evolutionary um, attributes that we as humans have been on for a while. And it's giving birth or a renaissance to a new direction, a new vector. And it's a new uh, reality in a lot of ways. And so, but primarily I think the global economy is going to be the most obvious way that we're entering in a new period. And it's all tied back to the attempt starting in the 1980s to financialize the global economy based on fractional reserve banking, fiat money and central banks. And to make that the primary driver of global economy by the issuance of debt. And so since the 80s and when the debt issuance exploded, uh, we're now at a point where global debt to global GDP is over 350%. It was quite enormous. And I think the Fed printed more money or debt last month than the country had done in the previous 200 years. So the 
money printer go burr is completely out of control at this point and uh, it's a tsunami of debt money and uh, at the same time within this avalanche of debt is the birth of bitcoin which is taking those those folks who are able to tune into it properly and understand it they're taking them forward if you can't tune into what bitcoin is saying you're going to be crushed in the avalanche of debt mm. so Max, let's let's assume that this future goes down kind of as you hope and as you describe. What are a couple of things that will be much better, like very specifically that you sort of forecast a couple decades out will be much better? And then let's also think about a couple of things that will uh, sort of be disrupted or where people may be on the outs or be the losers in that game. Right. So this means a future that has more peace, less war. So fiat money begets war. And hard money like Bitcoin, gold and silver, also beget peace. And the reason why is because fiat money, because it goes to the least qualified in the society and those with the most malevolent interests, ends up going into the pockets of those who want to make fast fiat money bucks. And the fastest way to make fiat money is to wage a war, open a prison, engage in aberrant behavior, let's say racism, and uh, to gain more fiat money, and they can do so if they have open access to free uh, debt at 0% cost. And that's why we have now this incredibly multiple, multi-headed collapse in the economy, the ecology, and society. It's all collapsing at the same time because fiat money is inherently evil and, and it's inherently um, promotes war. Uh, on the other hand, hard money, and particularly Bitcoin, because it's the hardest money ever created, um, is, is about peace. Because people, their natural state is to trade peacefully with one another. That's who we are as human beings. That's how we evolved, was communicating, trading, forming communities, and doing trade. And that's how this idea of hard money evolved, as a way to peace, peaceably trade. In other words, if I, going back even thousands of years, if I were to do a trade with you, um, even during the hunter-gatherer days, right? Even before the agricultural revolution and the beginning of domestication and modern humans, you know, if you did a trade with me, you would want to take in trade something that you could then in turn use to trade with somebody else, right? That's the beginning of the idea of hard money, that it has a store of value because it's, I, I don't want to steal your stuff. I don't want to have a war with you. I just want to trade with you. And so that's who we are as human beings. So with, the, with, with Bitcoin back in the mix, we can peaceably trade with one another again, knowing that what we're trading with is hard money and is a store of value, and I can use it in the future to trade with somebody else. So I'm, the, the incentive to, for violence is greatly reduced, if not eliminated completely. At the same time, you've got the emergence be, uh, through the internet of this digitization and monetization of the global unconsciousness. And that means that people are going to be able to travel through each other's minds effortlessly all the time. And so that's the beginning of another stage of our evolution. You put a little meat on the bone there. Uh, are you talking about like VR or something like that? I'm talking about the fact that the ability to monetize our thoughts is getting closer and closer. So the brain is circuitry and it's all energy and it's all neurons. And there's about a billion calculations per second in the human brain, just as a point of interest versus the Bitcoin blockchain, which is at a hundred quintillion 
calculations per second. There's about seven quintillion grains of sand on plant, planet Earth. If you added up all the grains of sand on all the beaches, it's about seven quintillion. And here you have the uh, Bitcoin is running at over 100 quintillion calculations per second. So it's a very big, very big piece of, of um, computational capability. And um, the ability then to probe into the neurological structure of the brain and how thoughts are actually moving around the brain in the network of the brain is going to become more quantifiable. And then when you have a Satoshi, which is 100 millionth of a Bitcoin as a unit of account, it, we're going to head to, into a period where people's thoughts can be monetized for Satoshis. And then if you notice, there's a lot of technology going on which used to be called telekinesis, where you could use your mind to move an object. You know, that's actually happening now. People with prosthetic limbs now can use their brain to move these prosthetic limbs because there's essentially mind reading going on. That's now happening. That's real. That's today. That's not fiction. So now apply that to a global unconsciousness and the uh, currency of the Satoshi, which is sent to us by divine inspiration, and you have the ability for you and I and everyone else to travel through each other's consciousness, trading ideas using Satoshis as a unit of account as this peaceful, hard money. Does this have anything to do with uh, the technology of implants into the brain as well? Are, you know, like kind of the Elon Musk uh, neuroscience uh, Right, Technology. Elon Musk is working on Neuralink, and this Neuralink, is, he's, yeah. he's tapping into uh, the people's minds, and he's talking about you can pipe music directly into your mind and things. I think that's definitely part of it. You know, there's always, uh, of course, when you when you talk about the future like this, there's always the question: Is it going to be uh, good or bad? And is this good or is this bad? Is this? And um, with the case of Bitcoin, the intention and the path is always good. Uh, when you're talking about fiat money, it's always bad. So when, as far as long as we're getting away from fiat money and moving toward Bitcoin, I think we we are on the right path. We're on a good path. We're on an evolutionary path. You know, nobody can control really the evolutionary path that we're on, and um, this is the way it's headed. Uh, and the species will undergo a massive transformation as it has in the past. Right. So, and we're on that. We're at that point now, which is interesting. So, you know, we're living in a period where we're going to see a massive quantum evolutionary leap uh, in our lifetime. So that, that's quite rare, quite rare, very, very rare. So we're experiencing that right now. What analogs do you pull in when you think of changes, uh, you know, even in, in the same order of magnitude as big as what you're expecting over the next 40, 50 years? Well, the uh, fire certainly, you know, was a massive game changer. Uh, the Gutenberg Press, major game changer. Uh, the internet itself was um, totally transformed the global economy. Nothing in the world of business really has been uh, not impacted by the information revolution and the internet and software. And everything's been really been turned into software. You know, the, the saying that software is eating the world, right? That's true. And, you know, I remember back in the 90s when Napster was introduced and that totally changed the music industry. They gave us Spotify, right? So that, that music industry was utterly transformed within 20, 25 years from a model that seemed like it was pretty good and gonna last for a while. And then it, that model disappeared overnight with, with Napster. 
you know, Napster didn't survive, but the uh, subsequent generations that became what we call Spotify and these other types of uh, technologies, things like that. Um, and uh, in, medically, you know, they, obviously the, um, the introduction of penicillin and these types of things was a huge game changer for humanity. Um, so this is, you know, one of those epic moments when there's a step change that we as a species are in a, in, in, in a new, a new quantum, a new quantum bowl, a new quantum, uh, quantum. Is there anything that you look at from, from literature or from sci-fi or, you know, any, any books or movies or anything that, that speak to you and kind of are analogous to this moment? Well, in, um, in the world of art and poetry is where you find hints of this happening all the time in the global unconscious as it's hidden uh, from us, but channeled into our consciousness through artistic endeavor, through poetic endeavor, through uh, musical endeavor. Uh, we, we, you, you have a glimpse into the, into the global unconscious and it's spiritually uplifting because you're for a moment, you're fused with the global unconscious. And I, I suppose the psychology of Carl Jung really outlines this. You know, he's a contemporary of Freud. Freud was very much into, um, it, you know, he more or less discovered, quote unquote, the unconscious and subconscious mind. Until then there wasn't really a scientific probe into these ideas. And then Freud really just, you know, he, he wrote about it and kind of discovered it, I guess you could say. Carl Jung then talked about the, um, the idea of the global unconscious, which is actually a Jungian idea. Uh, I would have to give him credit for that idea. And um, his work tying all stories together into one meta story, uh, the mandala, as he called it, that all stories are basically the, the one story. The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell is a fantastic book that talks about the underlying symbolic uh, nature and connective tissue that we all are part of. And um, so all these things have been written about and talked about and scientifically looked at and poetically and looked at and through literature and now technology is um, going there. So we're being taken there. We're, we're, the technology is taking us there. We always like to talk a little bit of music on this show. Uh, given my brother's uh, past career and, and continuing love for, uh, for that art form. Um, you mentioned music as something that, you know, uh, might have an artist or a song or something that's, that's transcendent and, and life-changing in the way that Bitcoin is for you. Name a couple. What are some favorites that have really inspired you over the years? I'm a huge jazz fan, and in particular, Bop fan, and in particular, Thelonious Monk, uh, Miles Davis. Uh, who explored music in a way um, that gave us a new chapter in the art of improvisation and, and musical improvisation. And um, also uh, the work of James Brown, who is, I think, an unheralded genius of the 20th century in terms of the fact that he invented funk. And funk is an incredibly important musical form. Um, and... Um, that's also in the spoken word and, and poetry of the 60s and 70s. Big fan of Gil Scott Heron from the 1970s. I was listening to him as a teenager 
and uh, inspired me in a lot of ways. And um, this has been something that I always come back to uh, as a way to reconnect myself to the global unconscious is listening to, uh, you know, some good uh, 50s and 1960s jazz, uh, improvisational riffs and Charlie Parker, uh, Charlie Parker solo is transcendental. You know, you, it'll, it'll take you to this place I'm talking about. Um, it can, it can do that. Yes, yes, it can. Now the uh, classical music going all the way back to Bach, similarly is, has a transcendental property. Remember Bach was writing for God. Uh, that was his mantra really. Um, and you take that line through Beethoven and Mozart and, and you find that these composers were deeply spiritual and making connections to the, the, this uh, inner spiritual stuff that uh, people relate to involuntarily, you know, right? Which is the great thing about great art is that people react to it involuntarily. They don't, it, it goes completely past the filter, any filters you may have, you know, it just hits you on a subconscious or unconscious level and you, you react. So then you have to decide, is that reaction real? Or in, in, in which case I was just touched, you know, by this art and what does that mean? Or you, you try to reject it. You know, a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to put up a mask or trying to put up a filter to avoid being touched by art. And that is, a, that causes anxiety and it causes um, a lot of pain, right? Um, if you, for most people who are in a state of anxiety or pain, once one way to escape that is to simply open themselves to art, open themselves to what's really happening. Um, and then that pain will go away, that existential pain, that angst, that anxiety. I was just listening to uh, Bitches Brew, uh, Miles Davis, and having my mind blown. Uh, I love your I love your list of artists. You just you just went through those are uh, I mean talk about kings. Uh, that's uh, that's a fabulous list. Uh, it, it reminds me of something that I was thinking about when you were just talking about the global unconscious. And if there is a, uh, a relevance to the world of psychedelics and psychedelic thinking and um, that part of the mind that gets turned on, because I know I've tuned into the global unconscious and it's felt literal and present in my whole being through some of those uses, you know, um, and Bitcoin actually seems analogous to that world to me. Right. Well, you know, that's the point of the orange pill podcast is that it, you take this orange pill and mm -hmm. you're immediately jacked into the psychedelic nature of the collective unconscious. And um, we haven't had a big effort like that in pop culture in a while, not since the sixties, not, not since, um, you know, we, we had, um, the, the experimentation with LSD that was done in the 60s and that spilled over into pop music, uh, probably most well-known with the Beatles, uh, would, would, mm -hmm. would incorporate that into their art. And um, you, you had um, the, um, the psychedelic period of Jimi Hendrix, you know, was very uh, 
he he made no secret about it that that he was you know kind of surfing out and on a certain psychedelic vector but um i think that's that's true so and a psychedelia goes back you know thousands of years really and the taking of um substances has always been a part of the human experience and it's probably the basis for what we call religion right so religion is just basically organized rituals uh, that were important for communities going back thousands of years. And uh, during these rituals, uh, communal consciousness was experienced with, and, and um, substances were imbibed that would uh, create um, these the hallucinogenic experiences. And, um, you know, this is um, unfortunately during period of modernity, you know, a period of post-war modern life and industrialization, the period of industrialization, we, we've lost a lot in terms of being able to have this type of communal uh, experience uh, as such. Um, you know, that, that could, it gets very political at that point. I mean, yeah. then you start talking about the politics of it, and there's a, there's a lot of politics involved, too much politics. And uh, so then you, you, you kind of drift away from, from what I think is a more important discussion. Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a progression in, in the way people think about these things as we're, we're not just a static, you know, uh, species. We're, we're changing and you look at it with a horse, an historical perspective, even the things you're talking about now, it's like, I feel like there is movement with youth culture tied into Bitcoin, tied into global unconscious thinking, uh, you know, thinking about the global unconscious that is, that is new. And that is, I feel like we are at the end, tying back to what you were talking about of a, of like this kind of like pushing this way of doing the economy through, through debt accumulation and, and, and debt buildup is kind of blowing up in our faces finally. Like we, like, it's just, we've, we've pushed it as far as we can. And we're at this moment in time that is so, so ripe that it, it, it's nice to think of it this way because it gets me excited and it makes me feel a little bit more optimistic instead of a lot of times I think young people uh, can kind of look at their prospects and feel pretty down and pretty uh, pretty bummed out about the future. And some of this thinking is optimistic thinking and this future being optimistic and being more peaceful is one that's exciting for me. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with that. So, you know, getting back to the 60s, of course, that was a really harsh period of the Vietnam War. And um, it gave rise to a youth culture, as it was called back then, that changed the, the culture significantly. And um, then we went into the Reagan years, which were more of a conservative years, politically conservative culture rapidly became more conservative, like movies like Top Gun and, and very pro-military movies were, were hot and big and, and uh, those types of, uh, and that's this, this segued into a period in Hollywood of um, superhero films, 
which are just repeating this this uh, idea of superheroes and and there's always a superhero and America is the superhero and Captain America and and uh, no no problem can't be solved without calling in a superhero which is uh, built by the Pentagon and funded by the Pentagon and and it has a big American flag on it and 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 so that seems to have reached its uh, end game and and um, because they've run out of money essentially <laughs> so it's like a bad video game or a video game and you know it's the game is over essentially you know you can't put the you ran out of quarters you know can't you can't play it's game over so um i, I think this is again it's, it's very political very quickly so the question is that does the american as a global political entity what's the future there and the the, the answer is probably not very good so young americans now have to figure out how to deal with that because they're unlike myself i took a huge slice of post-war american empire right so i my first job after after college was working as a stockbroker when i was 22 years old on wall street right at the time when you went from a 16-year bear market to a 35-year long bull market so I couldn't have been in a better spot at a better time. So I've been riding that way for 35 years, but that that's now coming to an end. And so um, this is not going to be, it's going to be a very different um, environment. So clearly right now in America, it's an incredibly different environment. It happened in five months. I mean, the, the pace at which the the economy and the American economy and what's happening socially and politically in America has changed and the, last five to six months is so overwhelmingly swift and, and, and uh, seismic, it's really hard to even describe. It's like being in the middle of a, of, a, of a tsunami and being tossed around and trying to describe what's going on. It's just, it's just, it's an overwhelming rate of change. I would say that's different. That's the difference between now and the 1960s. The 1960s took 10 years to really build until you had finally the Nixon resignation and it, 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 the, the fever was, burnt, was popped and, you know, and then, <laughs> then we had disco, which was like the post, you know, rock and roll 1960s answer, you know, the, which, which I can actually talk about disco because I'm a big fan of disco, but I'm not going to go there. But then, uh, so now, but that took a while to build. It took a long time, many years. So this, what we've seen is like that amount of change and, and more, but compressed into five months. And okay, I, I have trouble dealing with it. It's so, it's an, it's an amazing amount of change. I can't imagine if I was 20, 25 or 30 years old, how I would be dealing with this. I have no idea. I, I talked to 20 year olds and 25 year olds and 30 year olds and asked them like, what's going on? How are you dealing with it uh, to try to get a handle on it? Um, just, I have no idea. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about you know, broader society, but kind of at a micro level, like one-to-one -one interpersonal relationships, like small groups of networks and kind of like the ground up thing. And one of the things I'm really fond of saying now is, uh, is Bitcoin binds us. And when you unpack that a little bit, basically what you're saying is if you can, you know, you can very quickly sniff out even just over the internet on Twitter or Telegram or whatever, uh, if somebody has a pretty deep knowledge of Bitcoin and related topics. 
and if you do have that trust that they have spent that much time to really understand it and you know make salient points about Bitcoin and see things kind of through that lens, there's a lot of trust that comes with this. And I was just thinking about it, listening to you guys talk and thinking about this topic. And I bet I could just very quickly come up with a list of 10 anonymous Twitter handles where I don't know their name and don't know who they are. And I'd be totally fine with them staying in our guest room with my kids here at the house. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there. There's, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. So there, there's a... Um... Like White Rabbit, come on through. 6102 Bitcoin, sure, come on over. You ever wanna come out to LA? Like you could absolutely stay at my house for Bitcoin 2021. <laughs> well, for us, you know, doing Kaiser Report and everything we do, Max and Stacy traveling around the world, wherever we go, we find local Bitcoiners and we're immediately home. So Bitcoin has made the world our home because it's a tier one kind of currency or tier one concept uh, that is known globally and it attracts similar people all over the world. Africa, Europe, Asia, North America, Mexico, South America. The Bitcoiners, you can, you can meet all these anonymous Bitcoiners and, with, and, and you can very, very quickly, you're just completely at home. So that's a very valuable thing to, to never feel like you're not at home. Again, getting into this people who have anxiety and, and uh, who are feeling uh, existentially disconnected to, to life, by getting into Bitcoin, they immediately rejoin life. They immediately rejoin uh, the human experience. And that happens everywhere in the world because everywhere in the world, people want to trade. It goes back thousands of years. People want to trade peacefully. They want to meet people. They want to communicate. They want to trade. They want to get together. They want to party. They want to have a spiritual revelation. They want to work. They want to grow stuff, right? People are naturally peaceful and they naturally get together. And um, this is uh, spoiled, you know, the rise of militarization, the rise of violence. And that's usually backed by fractional reserve banking or paper money or faulty economics or, um, you know, really it all, you know, it's, it's, it's poorly collateralized. And so it, it causes a lot of problems. And this is the tension that goes back for millennia. This is the human experience. It's really hard money has always been the answer to fiat money, fake money problems. And so now we're at a point where this fiat money house of cards, this Ponzi scheme, it's once again, is collapsing. And to the rescue, unlike the last 5,000 years or 10,000 years, it won't be gold this time, it'll be Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is replacing gold as this hard money rescue for humanity at a time of excessive fiat money and war. Hey, Max. Um I'm curious uh, if you have thoughts about kind of the direction that education will be going in the future and colleges and university systems um, uh, as a, I, I don't know, it just popped into my head about how there's things in that world as well that seem to be collapsing. Um, and maybe that ties in somehow. Well, is education a part of um, our social contract to be in a community or be part of a nation state? 
you know, there was a time when getting an education was considered something the state was willing to provide for the greater good of the community as part of the social contract. And then over the past 30, 40, 50 years, we've lost sight of that. It's become commercialized, it's become commodified and financialized and encumbered with debt. So it's no longer serving the purpose that it once did. And um, as a result, we have more debt, right? So college students graduate with debt. That's all that they just become a vehicle. College students become a vehicle to to um, to create more debt, and so it's uh, it's it's very um, cynical because this generation of bankers has turned their children into debt debt vehicles, right? Yeah. I mean, it's they, just turned them into garbage, essentially. Yeah, that's uh, that's <laughs> that's well said. It's bleak, but it's well said. I mean, these universities are so wealthy too like they're just stockpiled in the in with cash at the same time as these human beings these individual college students are like you said debt vehicles well my my alma mater uh new york university uh you know if you look at the tish family and who they have the tish school of the arts you know the nyu from the time i was there to the present time is really transformed into a real estate holding company so it's a way to buy lots of buildings and stick um, people in dorm rooms that in a concentrated in ways that are not legal outside of a university and charge them a lot of money. Uh, and then, uh, so they've become, they've turned the, that, that a university into a very profitable real estate development deal, but it has nothing to do with education. It's definitely uh brings up some articles I saw last week and maybe this was clear. I just wasn't up to speed on it, but um, just how reliant uh, so many of the big sports schools, especially like SEC, Big 12, um, how reliant they are on college football just to keep the university afloat. Like all of these administrator salaries and the buildings and everything actually depend on the revenue from college football to be able to uh, stay solvent. And so basically the NCAA has ruled that you can't have athletes on campus unless all the students are on campus. And so, you know, science be damned, safety be damned, like it doesn't even matter what your opinion is or what the science is on whether or not, you know, kids should be all packed together, going to parties and football games or whatever. Uh, The colleges are going to massage the data however they have to and make whatever calls they have to, uh, to get everybody back on campus, no matter what. Um, which is kind of interesting to see that kind of uh, twisted incentive. It has nothing to do with the, you know, the safety of the kids. It's you've got to get them back or, you know, all these administrators lose their jobs because the school goes under. Right. It's just, it's too much debt. They're too, there's too indebted and they no longer have the mission of educating people for the betterment of society. People went to higher education and it was subsidized by the state, by the government. Uh, and so was healthcare, and so was transportation as part of the social contract between the governed uh, and those doing the governing. And that, that's part of the American political system that goes back to its creation. But the public domain and the public good has been shrunk to the point where it's almost completely non-existent. 
Now, if you want to get educated, you can educate yourself. It's not too hard. Just start with Aristotle and read up to the present. And you can become very well educated in a few years. Just read the classics. If you want to get rich, you don't go, don't go to college. I, I can tell you how to get rich right now in 30 seconds. You spend your time around, uh, and you meet people who play golf, play tennis, or ski. Those three, those three crowds are the richest people in the world, typically. And if you hang around tennis clubs, golf clubs, and ski resorts, you will meet very rich people and you know, make yourself uh, amenable uh, to, uh, and develop friendships, right? So you don't need to go to university to develop friendships. If you want to meet rich people and become a part of a network of rich people, that's where you find rich people. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, that's the new Max Kaiser uh, university. People go to Harvard because they meet people that they're going to know the rest of their lives who they're going right. to be calling on to do favors for the next 20 or 30 years as those people end up in high levels and politics and banking, yep. et cetera. Right. So, but you know, you don't need to go to Harvard to meet necessarily, especially if you can't, I mean, it's Harvard's probably a good place to meet a lot of uh, well-connected rich people, but uh, it's, uh, if it's closed and they're doing it uh, over the uh, internet and you can't actually meet people in person, you're not using the Cambridge, um, you know, uh, the, the, um, the location, the campus in, in Boston as a place to become um, fabulous. Uh, you know, you have to uh, seek these other spots out uh, and that's my advice uh, is uh, to do that. You know, I, I, I can name, you know, I know 50 stockbrokers, you know, who became incredibly rich simply starting out as caddies, you know, at the local country club, you know, it's just like, that. <laughs> it's, it's who you know, it's who you know is very important. Uh, also, if you go ahead, Matt. Oh, I was going to say, I just, I, how, fun was it in the late 70s, early 80s to be a student at NYU? Well, it's a remarkable period uh, yeah. because um, you had uh, right down the street in the East Village with CBGB's in Maxis, Kansas City. I was working at the college radio station, WNYU. Did you see the talking heads in their nascent uh, oh, stage? Lots, lots of acts. Everybody, they would yeah. come to the radio station and we would do interviews. So we had all these acts coming in because NYU, WNYU was one of the only really stations in New York that was breaking punk uh, and new wave, as it was called, acts at that time. Then up at, uptown where I was living, I was living on 145th Street and Broadway. Uh, we had the emergence of hip hop, the emergence of rap in the dorm room uh, in um, the, uh, the not the Rubin dorm room, but the, one of the other dorm rooms was Rick Rubin. You know, Rick Rubin was living there. He cut LL Cool J's first record in his dorm room. Uh, I used to see him all the time at the radio station. This is where I met Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin had just transferred from George Washington University. He was studying political science and he uh, started studying acting at NYU. And then we've been friends for 35 years. Um, also at that time you had um, just an unbelievably great club scene and music scene. And yeah, I'd say 
It was film, film too. Film, the, the, that era for film was just incredible, um, just as well. Uh, yeah, well, film school, NYU film school is well known. You know, I know uh, I met a friend of mine was at uh, the dorm and he's working on a script. And um, he said uh, he sent it to Steven Spielberg. And I'm like, oh, wow, that sounds cool. Good luck with that. Uh, well, the script was for um, a film called, um, what was it called? Grumbles? Ruples? Gremlins. Oh, Gremlins. It was Chris, <laughs> Chris Columbus. Oh, yeah. Chris, Chris Columbus, who became one of the most, uh, one of the biggest grossing movie produ directors of all time. Uh, Spike Lee was making uh, the film She's Gotta Have It. Yeah. At that time, uh, he was he needed like ten thousand bucks. You know, he's running around campus trying to raise money for that movie. That was his first film. Uh, you know, I was at the radio station and doing other stuff, radio, TV, and stuff. But then I got swept up in, in, into Wall Street, really, uh, and just you know, I loved the moment I, I started on Wall Street. Just loved it from day one, and just kind of like that was my career. That's awesome. You know, on that note, you know, there's, uh, there's been a big shift in uh, the attitude of uh, some of the Wall Street firms and just the, the whole Wall Street complex toward Bitcoin. Very recently, we saw the, uh, the OCC, which is now headed by a guy that used to be at Coinbase coming out and saying that banks can custody crypto. And then JP Morgan is now banking, it appears, banking Coinbase and open doors to banking other crypto companies. Um, what the heck is going on? I think they just put out a report like, you know, under their research group saying that boomers are buying gold and millennials are buying Bitcoin. What are you seeing? You know, you, you've been in Bitcoin for a decade and you've been in Wall Street off and on for 40 years. Like what's going on? Yeah, well, I had this conversation with Barry Silbert like nine years ago now, you know, in, in his office in New York. And he, you know, he, he kind of laid it all out. He said, this is what's going to happen in the next 10 years. And by year seven or eight, Wall Street's going to get involved. And by year 10 and 11, you know, things are going to go supernova. And um, that's exactly what's happened. So the Wall Street is, uh, has, is, is not different than Coca-Cola or Nike or Starbucks. They sell products. They need products. That's what Wall Street does. It sells products. And so um, and the Saul is looking for new products. And... So Bitcoin finally got to the point where they realized that this is a product that they could sell and make some money doing, selling it. And that's where they're at now. So they understand it. Um, it's very, very predictable though, um, that, this would, th that this moment would come. And um, they're in the game. Hedge funds are in the game. Paul Tudor Jones is in the game. I remember Paul Tudor Jones from the 1980s. He was really the top hedge fund guy at that time. And now he, just made a few brief statements about Bitcoin that were gold, just pure, fantastic, you know, saying that it's the fastest horse in the race when it comes to this reflation trade, which is now driving gold and silver and Bitcoin. And, and, and so I, I think he, as I've said, I think in a couple of years, it'll emerge that he's one of the biggest owners of Bitcoin in the world. I think he'll own a huge position, more than the Winklevoss uh, twins probably, um, because that's the way he rolls. And um, so it's, it's, on, it's on track. You know, the game theory that's built into the protocol, it was, it's destined to take on all comers. So um, at first, 10 years ago, it was more, um, you know, hobbyists and they were battling it out on chat boards. And, you know, mining became central geographically centered and 
different areas of the world. And it was big in China, of course, re until recently. Now it's shifting to Texas. And that's all part of the Bitcoin game theory that's built into the protocol. Uh, it, it, it invites people in and, and, and a lot of people who, who are coming in are trying to attack it. And that's part of the protocol. You know, the Bitcoin wants nation states to attack it. Bitcoin wants countries to think they can launch a 51% attack against it. And, and that's part of what makes it more secure. And with added security comes a higher price. So it's all, it's, it's like I said, I think it's starting around block 300,000, the protocol became self-aware. It's playing us in, in a way that's not fully understood, but <laughs> I really don't see us having much control over this thing at this point. Uh, it's controlling us and, do, and it's getting more and more in control, which is good because it's about peace. We wanted to defeat the fiat warmongers. You know, this is our, our guy in the fight is Bitcoin and Bitcoin is fighting for us for peace. That's what we want. Also, I mean, just to add another layer on top of this, there, I think there is kind of an emerging war, if you will, between Bitcoin and artificial intelligence because both are highly uh, energy dependent. And so energy as a scarce resource, we want, uh, we want AI not to win the energy wars. We want Bitcoin to win the energy wars. That's one of the reasons why Bitcoin's energy use, the fact that it's high is actually quite good because we're depriving or bleeding the energy away from AI. AI could potentially, we don't want AI to, to, to get in control. Uh, so again, Bitcoin is our ace in the hole. It's our, it's our guy in the fight. Is that because it should be more lucrative on balance for someone to put hash power, let's say, or just a data center power toward Bitcoin than to rent it out to AI number cruncher and machine learning yep. companies? Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, on the, it does feel like there's been a bit of a turning point. The Paul Tudor Jones thing started it, but I feel like the, uh, the Q2 earnings report for Square and them just sharing their numbers of their astronomical uh, Bitcoin sales and how quickly that has ramped up. And that being a week after the government saying, yeah, anybody can get in this business and sell Bitcoin or custody Bitcoin or whatever. Um, all the national credit unions and banks it just feels like all those people that were just given the green light two weeks ago then saw what you can do with that green light, you know, last week. And I feel like there are a lot of slide decks and biz ops and heads of strategy having interesting conversations right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, we've never seen anything with absolute scarcity like this that yeah. you can use as a medium of exchange as a store of value. Yeah. So it's extraordinarily uh, um, profound. You know, my friend uh, Al, um, Simon Dixon over at Bank of the Future, he, he thinks the following. He believes that the central bank is going to start their helicopter money going direct to individuals and cut out the banks using a cryptocurrency, you know, Fed coin or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the point there, though, is that the Fed is going to throw the banks under the bus and that they're not going to bail them out this time. So we could, and they, and, and what will happen is that individuals with bank deposits will be allowed to transfer your fiat money bank deposit into the Fed coin. So you won't lose it. And they're going to let the banks fail this time. 
which there's a, I can see that happening, and certainly everything seems to be moving in that direction. So that obviously would have huge ramifications. I would, I mean, there, there are two things that I think recent history, like last few months history shows us that may point to that not being the way to go. One is just the banks are such a good uh, mechanism to end run around Congress. Because if you're going to do things like, you know, FedCoin and directly helicopter money to people, you know, drop it right in their digital wallet or whatever, you actually would have to get through Congress through that. Whereas they've been able to do these, uh, these forgivable loans without asking permission from anyone in, in the trillions of dollars uh, just to print that money out of thin air because they essentially use the banks as, as the mechanism for getting that money out there. So they're just kind of like the cat's paw and, you know, there's like a, a tool that they're using. The other thing is the whole, the whole system at this point is so inflated. It all just falls apart if they can't keep the assets inflated, like they can't let the assets deflate. And the Fed is doing this by putting those crappy assets like these, you know, junk bond special purpose vehicles or whatever onto their balance sheet, but they can actually only do that uh, with the help of the banks. They're, it, they're actually in, in the Federal Reserve Act, they're not allowed to buy those things directly. So basically what they do is they announce, you know, on Monday they announce that on Friday we're going to buy this stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're gonna do a, a purchase, but on, on Tuesday, you know, the treasury, which, you know, technically is an agency because it has agency in the title, even though really when the Federal Reserve Act was created, they were actually only talking about mortgage-backed securities. It was supposed to be Freddie Mac and Jenny May. Um, but they twisted that language a few months ago and said, hey, well, the treasury is an agency and, you know, the Federal Reserve Act said we could buy any, any agency bonds. So they're having the treasury create special purpose vehicles, packaging up the absolute dregs of the financial system, these collateralized assets uh, that are junk bond rated, and then sticking them in a portfolio that's owned by the taxpayer. But the only way they can do that is if the banks buy them, hold them for 24 to 48 hours, and then sell them back. So the treasury creates it, sells it, because the Fed can't buy directly from the treasury, but as long as the banks are the go-between. And then, of course, we, the taxpayers, pay the premium to the banks for holding those and marking them up and selling them back to the Fed. So it's just this, uh, yeah, it's just uh, such a twisted Frankenstein thievery, <laughs> fuckery, right. tom, well, tomfoolery going on. Yeah, I'm not sure that they need the banks. Know, con that Congress should be necessarily a, an obstacle, you know, because under emergency powers, the president can do pretty much whatever he wants. So, and the mm. crisis that's unfolding is severe and emergency powers will be invoked, and particularly if this election coming in November is a huge failure. You know, that's gonna set off a wave of chaos that is some pretty, pretty gonna be pretty wild. What do you feel about, um, <laughs> you know, in terms of uh, the current economic status of, of corporations uh, like Amazon or the, the humongous uh, corporations that are so big that, especially in the, in the uh, internet companies where there's people like Elizabeth Warren talking about breaking them up or breaking them down. How do you see that? Well, the last time we had the trust buster, right? Teddy Roosevelt came in after the robber baron era or during the robber baron era, broke up the trusts, oil trusts, railroad trusts. And um, 
you know, you can see the value of that at the time. And, um, but I don't think that at the moment, the political uh, establishment has the capability to break up these now Apple's pushing $2 trillion in market capitalization. You've got these trillion dollar companies. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that um, there's going to be any um, pushback by government at all. What I do, what I do see happening is that the large multi-trillion dollar companies are now in a position since they can borrow money for free to simply gobble up what's left on the board. You know, when you play Monopoly, if you have Boardwalk and Park Place and you have a couple of hotels on those, you win. It's just a matter of time. So now with these tech oligopolists on the board, it's just now, it's just a matter of when they take it all. So the S&P 500 is the number of shares outstanding is actually shrinking because they're going into private equity systemically over the years. And to do it, the cost of borrowing to, to make all these acquisitions is, is zero. You know, a good example is Amazon when it bought Whole Foods. It's a multi-billion dollar acquisition and it was accretive. In other words, earnings dropped to the bottom line day one. It was, it, they cost them, it didn't cost, the, their cost was zero and they started banking those Whole Food profits day one, right? We've never ever seen that before. Usually when a, a conglomerate buys another company, they have to digest that company and it's a hit on earnings for some period of time. But this went directly to the bottom line. So, you know, play that out in this multi-trillion dollar uh, monopoly board. And um, you see that what we're heading for is just five or six huge corporations and um, very, very, and nothing else really going on. So we're heading to what I call neo-feudalism. It's more of a feudalism model. So you just have really these kings and queens and monarchs who control 99% of the economy. And then everyone else is basically subsistence uh, living. And I, I would imagine that that subsistence living would be clicking on ads to get enough calories for that day to survive. So that's your life. I mean, that's obviously a dystopian view. Uh, and it's not the Bitcoin view of higher consciousness that I was talking about earlier. You know, oh. this is like what happens if, if, if this is fails and we end up just sinking into the, to the muck of a multi-trillion dollar tech supremacy. And, um, it also should be pointed out that during this COVID period, people are at home, literally locked in their homes, just clicking on ads. And this gives rise to another model that I've come up with, I call it the casino gulag, <laughs> right? So the casino gulag model is that people are now imprisoned at home. That's the gulag part. And the casino part is, you know, playing games online all day, trying to win enough dollars to buy enough calories to survive the next day to play in the casino gulag. So you, you kind of see that already happening. And um, there's no, there's no, there's nothing in place to stop it, right? There's no Teddy Roosevelt. There's no, there's no rule of law. All the rules governing Wall Street have been stripped completely out. They're none, none of them exist anymore. Um, if, if in fact a Wall Street bank is caught, quote, breaking the law, 
they have the law changed, they write a new law, or they pay a small fine. That's it. There's no other consequence than that. And financial engineers consider themselves to be like, oh, they're all Chuck Yeager, and they're all breaking the sound barrier. And the response is always that, well, the laws are not keeping up with our genius as financial engineers. You know, the, one of the worst examples is when JP Morgan bought Traveler's Insurance. This was, I guess, now 20 years ago. And that broke Glass-Steagall law, clearly. And Glass-Steagall is the bulwark that was introduced after the crash of 29 to separate uh, Wall Street predatory banks from the rest of the banking community. But Jamie Dimon figured, you know, he would break the law and deal with it later, which is what he did. He bought Travelers, sure enough, became an issue that they had broken Glass-Steagall. And sure enough, they repealed Glass-Steagall. That was uh, our friend Bill Clinton, who also introduced the um, Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which de reclassified um, speculative derivatives trading from the category of gambling over to investment and more of an investment category. So it legalized reckless derivatives speculation in a way that we're still dealing with the consequences uh, in many ways. So, You're talking about when uh, the, the changes to what investment banks could do uh, in yeah, the 90s. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. All, uh, all, yeah. all, all laws, regulations pertaining to that would be applied to banks, brokers, hedge funds are, uh, they're, they're, they don't exist. There's no, there's no, there are no laws. There are no laws. And the, and the money is free. The, it costs nothing to borrow. So, okay, sometimes hyperbolically, some might say, I use this term financial terrorist. Okay, so um, uh, I'm not, I don't wanna digress and go down that, and talk about that per se, but the, um, if in fact, you think that what's happening on Wall Street is predatory and you think the monopolization of the economy is going to reduce competition, reduce diversity, reduce price discovery, reduce free market capitalism, which it does, um, then the way that you would address this problem is the same way if you were trying to stop a band of terrorists from attacking a town, you would, one way to do it would be to make sure that they did not have access to explosives and stuff like that to commit their terrorist act. Mm. So on Wall Street, the way to stop Jamie Dimon from continuing to do what he does is you've got to raise the cost of his terrorism and that, that would mean raise interest rates. The, oh. way to get, the way to solve this, this rampant rogue banking plague is to raise interest rates because that increases the cost of financial terrorism to the point where it's diminished, which is what we desperately need. But um, that'll never happen because people, of course, would say, oh my God, my mortgage rate would go up and I'd be homeless, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is that you can selectively raise just the margin rate that is applied to Wall Street speculators. 
and you would eliminate almost all of the predatory behavior that we see now. So um, it's not, but you know, but but they, but there's there's nobody in Washington who would put that proposal forward. So uh, it's never going to happen. But that's the easy way to do it. You can you can cure this whole thing in one week by simply raising margin rate, which is the cost of borrowing for financial predators. You could do it in a week. It's all the law. Everything's in place to do it. You don't need any special dispensations. Just do it. But, you know, Trump says he wants to bring rates negative. He wants mm -hmm. to go negative with rates. So that that would be like pouring gas on a fire, essentially, you know, to make everything that's really bad and make it much worse. When did, so, uh, when did the rates, like, was it decades ago that the rates just steadily started going down? Or has it been... Yeah. 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 So Paul Volcker, who was the Fed chairman before Alan Greenspan, took rates up to 20% to, to, because he was trying to um, address the inflation of that time. And so they peaked at around 1980, 1981. And we've been in a bull market, in, really in the bond market now, for almost 40 years. Bonds have gone, done nothing but go up. Usually, because rates are, keep going down, and because the central bank buys bonds to keep rates down, right? That's why central banks buy bonds is to make sure that rates keep going down. So they take that interest rate risk out of the market by putting it on their balance sheet, which is non, no, no accountability there. It just goes into a black hole. Nobody ever sees it again. So, but they do keep rates low. So this has been going on for 40 years. And generally in America, all problems are solved by repackaging the existing debt and refloating it with a lower coupon rate and an extended maturity. So it's extend and pretend. So every problem, whether it's uh, we need more money for war, we meet, need more money for the war on drugs, we need more money to bail out something here, something there. It just, all that means is the government is gonna buy back all of its existing debt, repackage it as new debt, and extend the maturity at a lower coupon. <laughs> it's pretty much the history of America for the past 40 years. So we've never had to deal with any problems because uh, it's, wow. it, it's never affected the people who sell debt. If you're in the debt selling business, this is the greatest country in the world to live in because no matter what happens, it just means you need to repackage the existing debt and sell it again. And take a rip on that sale. <laughs> right, and you, get, and you get the commission. So, I mean, the, the, the America's debt is roughly, uh, was it lately, like 22 trillion, 23 trillion. So if you got uh, two, 20 basis points, you know, and you're a Fed primary dealer, well, I think there's only 18 primary dealers. So they're the interface between the Fed and Wall Street. They take a rip on what's what that servicing that $22 trillion debt. So it's, it's free money for them. They just get all this free money. And so they're, they're not going to challenge that system. And um, it, it's, there's no reason that 0% interest rates, why it's not going to continue. The negative interest rates, of course, are now getting people into Bitcoin and gold. So this is why you see right now this gold hitting new all-time highs in the U.S. dollar is because of what we've been talking about here, that zero rates and negative rates um, now 
eliminate a huge problem with buying gold because gold was always suffered from the fact that it doesn't pay any interest, really it doesn't pay any dividends. And, but now if you're getting a negative rate, having zero rate on your investment is, is good because it's better than getting a negative rate, number one. Number two, all the, all the dynamics in the, in the world are that there's huge demand for gold and countries all over the world, central banks all over the world are buying gold. And so the, all the fundamentals for gold right now are extremely strong. And of course, we're seeing it in price. So it's, it's already broken out to new highs in every major currency. Now it's at a new high for in, in dollars. And this is, uh, plays right into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is hard money, store of value, safe haven. And, and that's what's driving this action. So you got home offices are buying it, institutions are buying it, Barry Silbert's buying it, Cash App is doing all the business. And, and so now this market is, is moving, you know, it's maturing into a full-blown global asset class that every portfolio manager in the world, starting with Paul Tudor Jones, who put one to 2% of his portfolio into Bitcoin. That means that if you want to stay competitive with Paul Tudor Jones, the lead dog, the alpha dog, the man who invented modern hedge funds, you've got to put one to 2% in your, of Bitcoin in your portfolio or you're, he's going to outperform you. Uh, and, oh, by the way, you think, you know what? I know what I'll do. I'll put 5% into uh, Bitcoin, right? So then it becomes... Um, uh, the price starts to skyrocket because uh, all these funds, there's 10,000 hedge funds, you know, they've got trillions of dollars under management and they don't own hardly any Bitcoin right now. All you need is a 2% swing in their portfolio allocation. And, you know, that's $25,000, $30,000 per Bitcoin right there. Just that one move. Then you add a nation state, some sovereign wealth fund in Qatar or Norway. They're like, yeah, we're going to put 2% into Bitcoin. Well, it's, the, the fund is, is uh, multiple hundred billions of big, right? That's, you put that into an asset that's worth 200 the moment, you know, around the 200, 220 billion range. And now you've got the $100 trillion global asset management business, which is how much money is under management by various institutions and firms and sovereign wealth funds looking at this $200 billion fly spec with this $100 trillion death star, right? And they start, you know, it just takes a 2% swing in asset allocation and 200 billion becomes 2 trillion, which is what we're gonna see as it chases gold into the multi-trillion dollar market cap. That's, 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 that's the launch pad we're on now. That's where we're on now. That, that's what's starting right now with negative rates, gold hitting new all time highs, and a potential election, presidential election chaos, and, and the war drums being beaten in various political hotspots, that's where we're at right now. Okay. So what would be your advice to the common man right now in terms of uh, how to act, considering all this information? You know, like what's, what's, what's the move financially, or if you wanted to get into a, a Bitcoin situation, this is yeah, it. talk, talk to us about that. This yeah. is it. This is the solution. Yeah. The swan. The swan, the swan. This is the solution. You know, when I was starting in Bitcoin, there was no swan. We had to go out to Mount Gox and buy coins on a dodgy exchange and, and get hacked and lose our keys and do all kinds of weird stuff. 
Yeah, it, it didn't exist back in 2011 when Bitcoin was a dollar. You know, the swan, what does it do? Well, it does some great things. First of all, you are in total control of your keys, right? If you want to, you don't keep them over here. So there's no problem with that. That's good. That's good point number one. Number two, you can set it up to do dollar cost averaging. So every day or every week or every month, it just buys your Bitcoin right from the bank. Just sucks it out while you're sleeping. You're Bitcoining in your sleep. There it is. You own it at whatever the price is at that moment. You're just gradually accumulating, gradually building it up over, over days. You know, there's an old Wall Street on, there's an old saying on Wall Street, eat like a bird, shit like an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You, just, you get a little bit every day, like a little birdie. <whistles> Uh-oh, now it's at 50,000. Now it's at 100,000. You're going to shit like an elephant. You're going to be 10, 20, 30 million bucks. And that's, that's no joke because the value of the dollar is also crashing. So it's a lot to do with the purchasing power is crashing as well. So that might not be as great sounding and reality, but it, it is a big number. Uh, uh, what else? Um, it's really cheap compared to Coinbase and these other uh, places that do similar things. Uh, so you get the best, the best uh, uh, price for what you're trying to do. Uh, the management team is, uh, you know, Corey and, and the gang are top, top people who are, you know, understand the, the, what Bitcoin's all about. Unlike, let's say, Coinbase, right? So, you know, I don't want to slam Coinbase too much, but they, they, it's more like a crypto casino over there. It's not really a good environment. I don't think they don't, I don't think they understand Bitcoin really. I mean, they'll cash the checks, but I don't think they really understand it. Yeah. So, um, you know, all, all that. So stuff. just for, for some, for the, for the layman who doesn't necessarily want to learn everything or know everything, but, but understands enough and just says, look, I want to, I want to be on board this train. I want to yeah. invest a little bit. Yeah. Something like Swan makes a lot of sense because you can just set it and forget it. And you don't have to have that anxiety. You don't have to have that you know you know worrying about when what the price is and all that kind of stuff you're just going look i'm setting myself up with a with an investment that's appropriate for how much money i can spend right now on on this and just slowly or i mean however fast you want to do it i guess depends on yeah. on, on who you are but then you just set it forget it and you're slowly getting an investment on this future train and yeah. that's yeah, that's very appealing. And yeah, it's, it's, you can start off, you know, uh, small. I think you can start off with ten bucks. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's it's worked through. You know, they work through Corey and a the team. They work through the whole, the psychological barriers people have to get into Bitcoin because they they don't want to lose their keys. They don't want to lose money, right? So here, this solves both problems. You know, you you're just gradually getting into it at a good dollar cost, and. Um, whatever you're comfortable with. And we're at a stage now where, look, I've been doing this since Trump for 10 years. And, you know, I've only met very few people and companies that were like 100% I felt comfortable recommending, right? Mm -hmm. Probably very few companies I feel 100% recommending. Um, so, I mean, Swan is, is uh, at the top of the list, right? So, 
Yeah, it's just it's just a good way to get your toe into the water. And once you start owning Bitcoin, you, then you it starts to work its magic on the way you're thinking. You know, instead of thinking about spending money, start thinking about saving money. Yeah, it's a profound change of consciousness. And once you start thinking about saving money, you start thinking about individual sovereignty. You know, what does that mean? Well, actually, you're thinking that maybe the world is kind of messed up right now, and maybe I am kind of on my own. Well, if that's true, I want to have money that I can take with me with that's unconfiscatable, pseudo-anonymous, and easy to move anywhere in the world at any moment, which you can do with Bitcoin. You know, if suddenly you're like, you know what, I've got to get to the Barbados, Barbados, because they, I can buy a passport there, you know, you know or um, Turkey right now. You can buy a passport in Turkey for $250,000. You don't even have to go there. So let's say you're in the U.S. and you're like, you know what, this shit's going down. I got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, you can buy a passport and you can take everything, your net, whole net worth, you know, put it on a seed wallet and you're gone. You know, it's like I'm individually sovereign. Can't touch me. Yeah, that could be important. Yeah, if, if the situation Absolutely. is completely out of hand, which yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't at this point, I can't I can't say that, uh, that that's not going to be the case. Well, guys, this has been just uh, a great discussion, Max. I know I, we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and that's why we split it up. And we hope to have you back again soon. Um, really looking forward to the launch of your new podcast, Bright Orange Pill, coming up, which is awesome. It's not I think the Bright Orange Pill. Oh, it's this Bright Orange Future Orange Pill Podcast. Orange Pill Podcast. Orange Pill Podcast. My bad. You have the Bright, bright Orange, Orange Future. Future Podcast. They're two separate podcasts. Well, I will say, uh, you know, for our other podcast, we were planning to do special series called. Uh, Orange Pill Sessions. We've canceled that in light of the launch of your podcast because Good. Uh, you're going to do it anyway. Do. So Cancel yeah. everything. Listen, the, the king of kings decided to roll <laughs> with the orange pill. We know, we know we're serfs. We'll get out of the way and not do that little series. It's totally fine. You um, go ahead and do it. I, I, I would feel have fun blowing you out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Kaiser has spoken. Yeah. Um, but listen, you know, I, uh, I, I just, we appreciate this. You did not uh, show your ref link, so I will. But if you go to, if you go to swanbitcoin.com slash Kaiser, uh, you will get $10 of free Bitcoin when you sign up for a membership. Um, you know, so uh, that's a really good way to get started. Max, thanks so much for, uh, for your support of the company and, and, you know, over the last few months. And we believe this will be a, a long-term friendship and partnership that will be great for Bitcoin, great for people. Um, so yeah, just keep on fighting the good fight and we'll do our part. Um, well, it was great meeting Matt. I see he yeah. all the good looks from the family. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Yeah. It, it, it's weird because, uh, you know, you would think that, so we, we do have different fathers, which is why we have different last names. So you would think with him being so much better looking that it would be because of the fathers, but it actually turns out that my father is actually better looking than both of us. So I don't really know where it all got mixed up. I just got the short end of the stick, but whatever. I got Bitcoin. Um, wow. Yeah, so. I, I get, we could spend a few hours on that. <laughs> Let me get my Freud textbook out here. And oh, you know, and I do want to. I do want to finish up with this. So you, men yeah. you mentioned uh, you mentioned Young 
Uh, Max, yes. have you ever, you ever taken an MBTI test? And don't tell me what you are. Uh, no, I haven't. You, you haven't? So this no. is the one where people are like, you know, ENTP and ISFJ and stuff like that. Never heard of those? No. All right. I want you to go on the internet and take one of those silly quizzes, you know, 40 questions or whatever. And let me uh, ask Stacy, have I ever taken one of these tests? Stacy says no. Have you? Okay. Stacy? Stacy also has not taken one of these tests. All right. Well, I want you to take it because I think you're an ESFJ and uh, I want to see if uh, I'm good at diagnosing these things. There's 16 different combos and I'm saying right now, I think you're an ESFJ and I want to see if I'm right. How do I know when I answer my information, they're not stealing my keys from my mind wallet? They're stealing the keys from your mind wallet and they're going to uh, sell it to Blackstone just like, uh, just like Ancestry.com just sold 18 million people's DNA sequencing to uh, I know, that's, that's incredibly oh, bad. Or Blackstone, I should say. Yeah, not good. Um, anyway, so many uh, good things Friday to look yet? forward to. I feel like I've been on this podcast for a long time. <laughs> I, we're shutting it down right now if, if uh, you know, the Kaiser would just give me the mic back. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Maybe we should try muting Max again. Uh, yeah, that's what Stacy does. She just mutes you. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Max, it's great to see you. Uh, brightorangefuture.com. The website's up. You can subscribe to the podcast. Obviously, we're on YouTube uh, releasing every Tuesday as well. Um, please do me a favor right now and just tell one friend about Bright Orange Future. That's the best way this thing spreads is just through word of mouth. So. Right. Like and if it, for Orange Pill Podcast, if you're French, we offer it as a suppository. <laughs> okay. I am definitely muting Max now. No, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Great. Well, this was awesome. Um, Max, we'll see you next time. Hopefully, it won't be too long. Uh, and uh, Maddie G, as always, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Max. Thanks for your time. That was an enlightening conversation. I sure enjoyed it. Bye right. now. Right I've been cheated. Glad to say this way.